0: Before we go into our passage, I, I want to ask you a question, or want us all to ask you this question, answer this question. What do you, or what do we, believe about who God is today? Aiden Wilson Tozer, uh, pastor of a bygone generation, once said that the, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. What do you believe about God? What do we as a culture believe about God? one of the things i like to do taking the advice of c.s. lewis lewis once said that we for every book that we read from our modern era we need to read a book from a previous generation because it corrects our our understanding of our world. Each generation looks at the world slightly different than the generation that precedes it or multiple generations. And when I look over time and I read uh, previous generations and their conception of God and I look at our conception of God and I find two very, very different worlds. There is a picture of the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God. And I I don't see that any longer in our culture. I, I see instead God as a counselor. God is a friend. God is a, a therapist, if you will. And I, and I see that these are very opposite of one another. And it's made me stop and go, well, if this has changed, I mean, is it good change or bad change? And as I look at our conception of God in the world today and I compare it to the Word of God, I find that the modern conception of God is wanting. It's, it's not accurate, we have lost this idea of God. As a matter of fact, in our culture here in the United States, we have sought to redefine God. Recreate God in our own image rather than understanding that we are made in His. We, and in order for us to, to do that, we also have to redefine sin. It's no longer sin. It's, we we want to make it more palpable for our modern ears. Uh, and, and we do this all over the place, by the way. We don't have lies any longer. We have factual inaccuracies. I love that. Factual inaccuracies. Uh, or, um, or pornography. It's uh, or like a magazine such as Playboy magazine. It's, it's not pornography. It's a gentleman's magazine. Or a strip club. It's a gentleman's club. It's not, there are no gentlemen there. It's not seriously. We we redefined this. We we shot to do it. We we don't call it abortion. We call it a medical procedure. See what we do is we try to redefine it in order that we don't feel the the brunt of it. You know there have been studies done uh, about the nature of men and women, and that we always, as people, part of the human race, always think of ourselves greater than we really are. We want to always portray ourselves as being good. And and we have a hard time of seeing ourselves as bad. But at the end of the day, no matter how much we redefine something, we come into contact with an immovable object, and that is God. And that we cannot change our definition. I mean, we can all that we want. We can change this, change that, change this. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter that God will be God no matter what we think about him. And we see that God is God. He is the sovereign, holy, awesome God. Yes, he's a counselor, but he is, he is far removed and yet intimately close at the same time. He is imminent, trans, imminent in that he's close and transcendent in that he's very far away. And, and they don't contradict within the nature of God. But God is also holy. He is loving. We like to talk about the love of God a lot. God loves, God loves, God loves. And that's wonderful. God is love. In his essence, he is love. But he is also holy, holy, holy. And he's a God of justice and a God of wrath. And he must punish sin. And I was thinking about this and looking at our conception of man and how this, this idea has, has infiltrated the church and, and, and got into different Christians' minds, especially those who have been in this culture for a long time. For those who are coming from a different culture, this might seem strange to your ears, but this is where our culture is at, where we want to make God tamed. We want to neuter Him, and in many ways, we've become bored of God. We've regulated God at the kids' table. He's not important enough to sit with the adults, in our lives, which is a sad picture. It really is. And we have to recover a vision of God for who He is. We have to get back and recalibrate and refocus to see Him for who He is. So we have to go back with what, to what transcends time, which is the Word of God. It recalibrates our compass it is our true north and refocuses us. And here we come to a passage today where God is speaking to a nation. He's actually speaking to the prophet Habakkuk and he is a minor prophet by size not by influence. And he is calling out to God wondering how God is going to respond to the wickedness of his people Judah. And God God is going to respond and he's going to use these wicked Chaldeans in order to discipline or punish his people. And it bothers him a great deal. Because how could God use such a wicked nation to do this to us? And he calls out and asks God why. And then God says, I'm going to take care of Judah, but I'm also going to take care of the nation that I'm using. I'm going to punish them too. I'm going to cut them down. He actually uses that term. And when I thought of that, the song in my mind, uh, a a song triggered. And I'm not a huge Johnny Cash fan, but for some reason, I've been listening to Johnny Cash lately. My wife thinks that I have some disease. I'm liking country music, and I don't know why. And I listened to the Johnny Cash song, God's Gonna Cut You Down. I don't know if you've heard this song, uh, but it goes like this. The the lyrics uh, go like this. You can run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. He goes, go tell that long-tongued liar. Go go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Sooner or later, tell him God's going to cut him down. Tell him God's going to cut him down. In other words, he's saying that God's not going to be mocked. Your definition, what you think you're going to get away with, you might have redefined, you might have excused, you might have surrounded yourself with people who don't care. God doesn't care. God's going to bring you back to him. That's what matters. His word and what he has said. And he has said that sin will be judged. You think people are going to get away with it. You think that your spouse who cheated on you is going to get away with it. You think that injustice is going to get away with it. It's not. It's not. There will be justice. And sometimes justice that this earth cannot even begin to grasp or comprehend. So we have to understand that, that God's going to cut down. And, and this passage then is a, a call to each one of us. That through Habakkuk, we're going to see that God gives two choices. He takes all of the things that we want to do to recreate, no matter which way we want to do it, and he puts them into one giant category. And then he says, this is what's going to happen for those who do not do what I say. And this is what's going to happen to those who do what I say. And I'm going to give you a future promise because ultimately it all comes down to this. Whatever definition, whatever thing you want to do, it all comes down into one in the mind of God. And here, all those who seek to do what God wants fit into this category. And he presents us with a future. And this future is one of against him or for him. And so that's what we're going to look at today, because we have to ask ourselves, if we take an honest assessment and look at our lives, which one are we really? Not our, which one do I want it to be or wish it was, but honestly, in the depth of my being, which one am I? Am I the one that's trying to redefine and do my own thing, or am I the one that's truly trying to do what God wants me to do? Because that is the difference. That's the game. And we're going to see what that is because he gives us a future of a promise. You just have to figure out which promise is yours going to be. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask God by his Holy Spirit to speak to us as we open his word. Holy, awesome, transcendent, loving, wrathful, just God you who are from everlasting to everlasting you are the king of glory the king of the universe the almighty, the lord of hosts the sovereign God the mighty one, the ancient of days we come into your presence Lord you alone are our audience and all of creation is silent before you as we consider your holiness and your power and we come before you now asking you to reveal the truth of our heart. Bring up anything in us that is offensive in your sight. Use your word to be a mirror to our souls that we might see the reality of who we really are as we contemplate your being, your nature, and your purposes, your ways. And we ask that you speak to us. Because, Lord, we want to do your will. We want to know you. We want to follow you, and Lord, help us to understand and comprehend all you have laid out within your word through Habakkuk's words, so that we might be changed and transformed and your name might radiate from our lips and our hearts, and that we might increase our joy in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Let's jump right in to verse 6. Now, Uh, Before we go any further, we're going to see here that Habakkuk has five different what we call woes. Uh, God is speaking to Habakkuk and telling uh, what's going to happen to the wicked Chaldeans after they have disciplined uh, Judah. And he's saying, I've got this all worked out. I've got this plan it's going to put together. Judah's going to get theirs, and then the Chaldeans are going to get theirs. And there are five woes, and there are five headings, in other words, that we could group and see ourselves in. In other words, we can see through his interaction with the Chaldeans, there is certain wickedness that is judged that we can draw forth and see in our own lives in our day and age and understand that if God was going to judge them then, then he is going to also judge us now if we continue on in the similar pursuits that they had. So it starts off first here in verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you've plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, we're going to be going through the English Standard Version, but I'm going to be referring to the New Living Translation. These are different English translations. The English Standard Version is built to be very literal, word for word. And those of you who speak multiple languages, you know that sometimes one word doesn't always convey the idea of what's being brought out in that language. Uh, we don't always get idioms very well. And in, so in the New Living Translation captures that. So I'll be going back and forth between those. And here's what we can see in the New Living Translation. But soon their captives will taunt them. Taunt them. They will mock them saying, What sorrow awaits you thieves. Now you will get what you deserve. You've become rich by extortion, but how much longer can this go on? Suddenly your debtors will take action. They will turn on you and take all you have. While you stand trembling and helpless, because you've plundered many nations, now all the survivors will plunder you. You committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the towns with violence. Now, I would take all of these woes, and we're going to examine the first one here in just a moment, and I would group them under a heading of future humiliation. He is saying that if you continue on in the way that you're living against me, then you have a few, I, I'm giving you a promise that there will be a future of humiliation. That is coming. And this humiliation uh, is that he's going to shame and bring down all who, and according to this one, who defraud others for gain. They defraud others for gain. Meaning that they're stealing from other people to get what they wanted to do. They abuse the system. Right? Some of us say, well, we didn't steal from, I abused the system, or I didn't want to do that, I, I just did this, and it's a little thing. But if you're trying to defraud other people to fill your own pockets in your game, this, this is you. And we see, though, how are we to respond to this? A great example of someone who defrauded people and had a life change is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the short little guy, he was a a tax collector, wealthy. I could picture him on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. There's a parade. Jesus is coming down Michigan Avenue. He climbs up a light pole to see him because he can't see over everybody else. He's a short guy. But Jesus stops and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to dine at your house today. And so he shows up at Zacchaeus' home. And this is what Zacchaeus responds with. He stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half- The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and I may or may not have done that, I might have abused the system a little bit. I might have taken advantage of some people here and there. Okay, I did. And if I've done that, then I'm going to restore it now fourfold. See, this is where the gospel has to get down into the depth of who we are. We have done ourselves an injustice by saying you just pray the prayer or you made a decision. I, I've heard so many people say, well, we had four, you know, four people made decisions today, which is great. Praise God. But that's not all. See, the idea is of following Jesus, of taking up one's cross. That's the idea. And when I, when I hear someone said they made a decision for Jesus, to me it means you started the journey to follow. But if there's no following, there was real, no real decision. That's not a real decision. And here you see Zacchaeus where God says, I'm going to get down into the depth of who you are. You were defrauding people. Now you've got to give back. That's where the gospel is active. See, where God's going to point that area of your life that you know where you've done wrong. You know what it is. It's like the story of Abraham and Isaac. Where God calls Abraham and he says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac, the most dear thing you have, the most precious thing you have. I, and, and it's the, the son of promise, but I want you to, to sacrifice my son for, for me. I want you to sacrifice your son. And our modern mind, you're like, that's nuts. But he was trying to get his heart, to get to the heart of him, this one thing that you're keeping away from me. What is the one thing that you're keeping away from God? What's your Isaac? What's the one thing that you're holding on to? You said, I can follow God, but I just got to hold on to this. I'll take everything else, but just don't take this. What is it? See, for him, he was holding on. He had defrauded people, and he needed to make that right. And there are people that you know you have wrong that you need to go back and make it right. See, if you hold on to it, there's a humiliation that awaits for you. Shame that's going to come. And the longer you hold on to it, the worse it's going to get. It's not going to get better. Now let's look at the next stanza in verse 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. I want to look at the New Living Translation. I like it. It captures more the essence for our modern ears a little bit better. What sorrow awaits you who build big houses with money gained dishonestly. He's got a huge house, big crib, showing off all of his bling. You believe your wealth will buy security, putting your family's nest uh, beyond the reach of danger, but by the murders you committed, you have shamed your name and forfeited your life. The very stones in the walls cry out against you, and the beams and the ceilings echo the complaint. So there's a few parts to this. First of all, uh, you have people constructing houses with money they stole from others, and then they believe that their money would enable them to have security from any danger, They'd be untouchable and away from danger. But then it says that they have committed murder. They had killed others for their own gain. And in doing so, they have shamed their name and forfeited their lives. The very stones of their house, the, very, the drywall, the very studs cry out of what they have done. And God promises to shame and cut down those who direct their hope on money. Direct your hope on money. That's the next point that you can write down. If you put your hope in money, you're going to be in serious trouble. See, money is not a bad thing as long as we understand it's a tool to be used. We can control it or it will control us. And here it's the love of money that has controlled them, that has led to all kinds of other evils. How many of us have have sold our souls to get more money, to gain a greater status, going even so far as to murder to do it? There are some here who have done that very thing. You wanted a different lifestyle, so you murdered someone else to do it. Now, it might not be in a shot. It It could be shooting someone. Who knows? I mean, with the violence that we see going on in Chicago and some of our inner cities with kids shooting kids, and they're trying to get status, they're trying to get money, they're trying to get power, or you have others that it's a bit more subversive where you have an unexpected pregnancy, and it's going to influence your lifestyle. Therefore, you terminate the pregnancy. But you don't understand it. I do. Unfortunately, all too well. We see what people are willing to do. We need to be able to help people in poverty that are struggling, they're trying to get out, but that is not the solution. But we see people put their hope on money. Don't do that, especially for those that are coming. I mean, in America, especially if those are coming from different nations and you've lived in poverty, please don't put your hope in money. Money's a tool. But I've seen too many come from different nations that you came and you had God before you came and then you you didn't have money. Then you got money and you, you got rid of God. And it cannot be that way. It cannot be that way. We have to hold on to God, not direct our hope on money. Now, it's interesting here what it says in the wording. It says that you have forfeited your life. It literally means you wasted it. Let's say, I got all this stuff. I got everything I wanted. God says, you're a fool. Even the building cries out. Your guilt is always there. Your shame is always there. You cannot get away from it. That's how bad it is. He says, and and here it says, you've wasted your life. You might have everything. You got all the things that the people of the world would ever want. But in the reality is, is that you've wasted your life. You wasted it. You thought you had all this notoriety, all this status, but the reality is, is you ended with nothing. God considers your life whew, wasted. It's gone. I'd like to go back to verse 12. I'm going to go to the NLT. He puts it this way. What sorrow awaits you who build cities with money gained through murder and corruption? Has not the Lord of heaven's armies promised that the wealth of nations will turn to ashes? They work so hard, but all is in vain. For as the waters fill the sea, earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. See, they had sought to develop or build a city apart from God. And we have the exact temptation in our day and age to develop a life apart from God. We want to make a name for ourselves to show how great we are. Our society is in love with this idea to remove God from society. Uh, for the sake of human flourishing, we want to build a world where anything goes where you can 't tell me what to do. I am the lone determinant and determiner for what is right and what is wrong. I can be whatever I want to be, provided that I believe it sincerely with all of my heart. But such a world does not exist. See, we think we will be happy apart from God, but as c s Lewis said it, he put it this way in his his quote he said God can't give us a peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. Can't. Doesn't exist. You think you can, but you can't. See, one of the great examples of this comes from Genesis chapter 11 where man came on early in civilization to build a tower apart from God in order to build their own reputation among men, but God would have none of it. He will not share his glory with another. So he caused them to speak in different languages, which resulted in their inability to communicate and work together, thus uh, scuttling the entire project. Project. We can try to build our lives apart from God. Our family, job, career, finances, children, the list goes on and on and on and on. But eventually it will come to a very abrupt and terrible end. But see, that's what our society wants to do today, to build a life apart from God. I'm reminded of this. I saw a video just the other day uh, of a pastor, John MacArthur. Some of you may, not know, may know him, may not. Um, kind of a uh, an older pastor, been around a long time with an extremely faithful ministry. He has preached verse by verse through the entire Bible. It took him 40 years to do it, but he did it. Incredible ministry. And a young woman was asking him a question. She was in her teens. And she said, Pastor MacArthur, she goes, How do I speak to a transgender person? Uh, what pronouns do I use? And he responded with, first of all, it is a social construct you, uh, of being transgendered. You are either male or female. You cannot change biology. You might get a sex change, but the DNA does not change. Uh, you are a man or a woman. And this belief comes from, and he said, from our society, especially within our internet culture, which believes that you can be whatever you want to be as long as it's sincere. And he said, really what it ultimately is, is rebellion against God in the most base manner possible. Where you try to deny your humanity by saying, God, you did not make me this. I believe I want to be this, and therefore I am going to be that. And it doesn't matter what you think. It's rebellion in the most base form. But we see that in every part of our society, not just the transgender understanding, the sexuality, the sexual mores. Once now that homosexual marriage or gay marriage became legal, now you have all of these different alternatives coming up all over the place. People are saying, well, if that's okay, then this is okay, then this is okay. Now you have three people or four people or five people or animals or children. All of these different things now are in play. That's what our society has become. It's become every man for himself. That's what you believe is true. So that's good for you, but it's not right for me. But that's where God's word has to come in and like a breeze, remove the fog of our culture to get a sincere sight of who he is. Because we can try to build our life apart from God. Whether it's in terms of our money, whether it's in terms of our, our sexuality, our identity, all of these different things are in play. And we can either agree and believe what God says within his word and try to orchestrate and construct our lives according to the truth of who he is and what he has revealed about us, or we can go our own way. And again, that's going to lead to humiliation. Broad is the pathway to destruction, and narrow is the road to eternal life if you find it. As the scripture has said, God cannot give us a peace and happiness apart from himself. It does not exist. Let's get back to our text. Look at verse 15. And again, the New Living Translation puts it this way. "What sorrow awaits you who make your neighbors drunk? You force your cup on them so you can gloat over their shameful nakedness. But it will soon, soon it will be your turn to be disgraced. Come, drink, and be exposed. Drink from the cup of the Lord's judgment, and all your glory will be turned to shame. You cut down the forests of Lebanon. Now you will be cut down. God's going to cut you down. You destroyed the wild animals, so now their terror will be yours. You committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the lands with violence. So what's happening here is they're getting their neighbors drunk to take advantage of them. It's sad, but it happens today. They use alcohol or drugs to get what they want. One need to think of the, the Bill, Bill Cosby trial to read all that is, he's being accused of. Again, a person is innocent until proven guilty. But such a dearth of witnesses doesn't look good. And that could be for anybody, by the way, not just a public figure uh, like that. But people that are trying to take advantage of them to, this, to see their nakedness. And what they're trying to do is to shame them, to, to see them. So they're getting them drunk to, to be able to see. And he even says see their uncircumcision because he's talking about the Chaldeans and, and up opposite the Jews where circumcision was a part of their identity. And he's trying to expose and shame them. And God is saying that you try to get them to drink and get drunk so you can shame them. Now you're going to drink of God's cup. And he's going to make you shamed and exposed. He's going to bring it all out to see it all. That just because it's been delayed doesn't mean it's been denied. That what a man sows, he will also reap. God is not going to be mocked. He's going to bring it back. These people were deceiving others to get what they wanted. That's what they were doing. And God is saying, no, 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 no. They cannot continue on to deceive others to get what they Wanted. That's the letter D within your notes. We want to redefine everything, but we can't. Let's look at eight, verse 18 for a moment. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone arise. Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Another thing that we will see it will bring shame and destruction is when we depend on idols. We depend on idols. Now, I know that some of you come from cultures where you have very physical idols that have some type of power. Uh, amulet, charm. Uh, any of that. Now, those are idols, but those aren't the only idols, and those cannot work. I don't care what culture you come from. You cannot combine the two together. We want to take our idols, which are not necessarily physical objects I'm going to talk about in a moment. We want to combine them with the worship of God. Here's what I mean. Uh, a few years ago, I was in India and I got to go to a slum to visit a church plant that was being done there. And a guy was doing a great work. He had put in a, a well uh, in a place where the people were bathing in an area and using the bathroom in an area where the water buffalo were. Um, they were, it was not sanitary. And uh, the people were around. This guy had con- managed to construct a small pole building, and I mean poles loosely, with cardboard and. Um, corrugated steel around the edge of it. It was all rusted. And he had some some places for women to come and uh, using old sewing machines in order to make bags and then sell them on the street in order to get out of poverty. It was a great ministry. And while we were there, uh, we met a man that went to this guy's church. And, and he wanted to, he kept saying, come, come. He wanted to show us his home. And his home was very small. Again, uh, just the the cardboard and the metal and showed us his bed and, and his little small kitchen area and dirt floor. And uh, we're thanking him for his hospitality, and he, he wanted to show us something else. And our, our guide and translator says he wants to show us something, and he's asking us to drive to it. He doesn't have a car, but wonders if he can drive with us. And we said, sure, I don't mind. He goes, it's just around the corner. So we get in the car, we come around the corner, and there, right on this Corner is this small structure that's white with bright orange and green, and it's an altar where there are, are uh, flowers all over it. and And he comes and gets out of the car. He runs to the altar. He puts an offering on it, and he bows down and begins to worship his deity. And I'm looking at this, going, and I look at my guy, going, "I thought you said he went to your church." He goes, "He does," and he's trying to figure this out. And I said, "This is syncretism, where you're combining one religion with another." And you're, he's saying it's okay to have Jesus and worship his idol at the same time. Now, I think we're guilty of just the same thing he is, except we're not bowing down to objects like that. Now, some of us might be, but others of us have idols in our own culture. And here's what I mean by that. Or, or Let me define what an idol is, first of all. An idol is usually a good thing that we make a God thing, and then it becomes a bad thing. It's usually a good thing that we make a God thing. We make it the ultimate in our life, and then it in turn becomes a bad thing. Now, Tim Keller, uh, now retired pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan, he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And in it, he, I, he lays out these idols that we have or are guilty of in our culture. Let me give you a few of them. First of all, we have theological idols. Uh, theo, meaning a God, uh, logos, word. It's a belief about God. Um, theological idols are doctrinal teaching, that's what that means, errors, and produce such a distorted view of God that we end up worshiping a false god. Where we say doctrine doesn't matter, let's just worship Jesus. No, doctrine helps understand who Jesus is. It's very important. So we have theological idols. Now, we may or may not be guilty of that. But then we have sexual idols. Pornography and different fetishisms. That could be guilty of that. Uh, Then there are identity and individual idols that demand acceptance and is a revolution against our biology When we say that we are the opposite gender than our biology tells us, or when we have unrealistic ideals of our physical beauty in ourselves or in our spouses. And then there are magic ritual idols that many of you from non-Western cultures might have. Uh, They're found uh, witch doctors, charms, amulets that promise to ward off evil spirits or illnesses. We sometimes combine this with Christianity and it results in a kind of syncretism that is condemned by God. And then we have, and especially in our various cultures, we have political or economic idols. These are ideologies, beliefs, by those on the left and on the right that make their political positions the very gospel itself. We have our own racial racial or national idols where we believe our race or country is better than others, which is part of what we're seeing happen in Charlottesville right now which is wrong. That's wrong. Especially for those of us who are Christians, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free nor male nor female. That he died to bring all nations together, one in ourselves. That's what we're to be. We don't have a skin problem. We have a sin problem. That's what it's about when it gets down to it. And I've seen people say, you know, it's a black and white thing. No, it's not. Go into a different culture. Some of you are from cultures where you had tribes, you're the same skin tone, and you were war with one another. It had nothing to do with the color of one's skin. It could be locale. It could be philosophy. There's all, we can find all matters of reason to fight. But where we find oneness is within Christ, where he regulates the playing field. But we have a tendency to elevate our politics over the gospel, and that cannot be. That makes a distorted God. That's why you'll hear me talk about the American deity, that there is this American moral therapeutic deity who demands nothing from us and wants to give us everything, but it's not the God of the Bible. It's different. It's different. There are other idols that we have. We have our religious idols, such as moralism, where we can believe we can just be moral without God. Or legalism, where we elevate one spiritual practice over another. Or we give an idolatry of success and gifts, and then use religion as a platform for abuse of authority, power, control over others. And then we have philosophical idols that are systems of thought that make some created thing the problem with life instead of sin and elevate some human solution as a solution to the problem instead of God's amazing grace. And then there are cultural idols, such as radical individualism, many of us in the West are guilty of, that we assert our personal rights to the point where we deny or hurt the community around us. And then there are the deep idols, where we ascribe meaning to life if we only have power, approval, or a certain comfort. As the French biblical scholar John Calvin once said, we are a factory of idols. We can make idols out of anything and everything. Now, when I hear this about God's Word, I I have a tendency to respond as the Israelites did in Deuteronomy 5.25. After they heard the voice of God, they responded and said, if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. It's, it's, too, it's too hard, it's too amazing, it's too... It it's weights my heart. But where is this? Is there, I mean, is there hope? Is there only humiliation? See, we've seen God cut off every lifeline that we had hoped in and were doomed to a future of destruction and humiliation. Yet, embedded within the storm clouds of Habakkuk are verses that give us a glimmer of hope. That's the other alternative. You have humiliation or you have hope. You have a humiliation that says the future is coming or you have a hope in a future where God says, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to trust. Will you walk by faith and not by sight? Where is your hope? We all hope in something. Some of you have hope that life is going to be better, that your spouse, you're going to find a spouse or you're going to have this job or this career. We have hope. We have hope. We have hope. But you know what? Hope often disappoints. See, for an example, I had hope that the Bears were going to be good until I watched the first few minutes of the preseason game, and then my hope dashed. Now, fortunately, there was a renewal (laughs) near the end, but some people are like that. We put our hope in all kinds of things. There is a hope that will not disappoint, and that's in Jesus. That hope will not disappoint. I guarantee it. Every other hope will disappoint, but not this one. Now, what is this hope? What, can we, what does this hope tell us? Well, first of all, after looking at all of these passages, it's a reminder to each one of us that evil is going to be judged. And that brings a joy to my heart. It sounds sad. I mean, it, kind of strange. But it's a joy to me because it helps me know that what I'm doing is not in vain. When I know that evil will be ultimately judged in the world. Now, it should also cause us to fear because we can see our own evil in that but it should respond in obedience. So evil will be judged, but there's more than that. There's this understanding that he he is in charge. I mean, God sees evil and he's going to judge it. God's going to take away the evil, but he's also going to comfort those who love him. I don't know what you cry over. When's the last time you cried? I mean, we all cry for different things. Even men cry. Matter of fact, I, this whole understanding that men don't cry, I don't know where that came from. Because you look back in ancient literature, especially like in Homer's Iliad, you have warriors crying outright. They're screaming out and crying out. And, and, and you know, it says there is something that so takes over our lives that causes us to cry. Injustice in the world. When you look at what's happening in Charlottesville, when you look at the tapping in different places, when you hear of babies being killed, when you see races being mistreated, you see injustice going on, that, that bothers my soul. It makes me weep, but it makes me rejoice to know that one day evil will be judged, and it will be a proper judgment. But you know what's interesting? In the Psalms, it says that God takes all of our tears and puts them in his bottle. He sees our tears. He sees your struggle. He knows the pain you've gone through. And he cares for you and he treasures that. He loves you so much. He's not removed from your situation that he's intimately connected with it. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 7, we read that one day that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death, which is where we weep the most. When someone dies, and we know it, someone died too early, someone died tragically, and we weep, and it says that he sees that, he knows. He's not removed. He's not unaware. He knows. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But he'll wipe every tear from our eye. What love. He's going to judge evil. He's going to take it all out. But something else, even greater, and I love this. Attached on the back of the the third woe is a, a verse. It starts at verse 12, but the real verse hits you in verse 14. It says, "Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. For those who are building their life on sin. Behold, it's not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing, they work hard. But you know what? One day. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. As man tried to build a city without God, one day that's going to be wiped away and he is going to show everyone who he is. That's the next point. Evil will be judged, but everyone will know who he is. Every single person that lives, that breathes, will know him, and they will bow down, willingly or unwillingly. Every knee shall bow, and every mouth cry out and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It will not be, there will not be any escape, and that should give us hope that one day everyone will know, and that means that we should tell people now about who Jesus is that they might know and they might enter into that joy and find that peace and find that freedom and purpose. Everyone will know who he is. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God, he is going to reign. One of the things I liked last year about when the Cubs won the World Series, they had these sweatshirts on. It says, we came to reign. I like that. But Jesus, he's going to reign. And there's no doubt. With the Cubs, I had a lot of doubt. (laughs) Up until the very last out, I doubted. Even when Chris Bryant picked up that ground ball and got ready to throw it to Anthony Rizzo at first base, I thought, they're going to screw it up. (laughs) They're going to mess it up. And I had hope, but it was a very dim hope. This hope is not dim. This one's surely coming the past. Everyone will know who he is. Knowing that Jesus is going to make all wrongs right. Knowing that all evil is going to be judged. Knowing that everyone will know who he is. What does that leave for us as a response? If you don't want to be humiliated, then we should exalt his name now. How do you exalt his name? It begins with surrender. Scripture says that while we were still yet enemies, Christ died for us. If we are his enemies, then we have to lay down our weapons of our warfare. We have to surrender to who he is. We shouldn't wait until the end, but freely confess and surrender that Jesus Christ is God. That's what verse 20 is all about. I love verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence to be silent to know that he is reigning that he is lord and acknowledge it surrender now exalt his name together it has been said that the reason dwight lyman moody the great chicago evangelist of the 19th century from whom uh, which is moody bible institute is named after was such an effective evangelist because he wept whenever he spoke of hell His wasn't a gospel of fear as much as one of love. Love is the basis for his weeping. He cared for people so much that he didn't want to see them go to hell to continue on in their disobedience and experience the consequence of their actions. God doesn't want you to go to hell either. That's why he sent his son to experience the death we were to experience. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins. Jesus loved you to the point of the cross. He was betrayed, yet was innocent. Nevertheless, was sentenced to death. He was humiliated, shamed, mocked, beaten mercilessly by the Romans and spit upon by the Jews. The Romans got a robe, constructed a crown of thorns, and shoved it upon his head, gave him a mock scepter, and mockingly bowed down to pay homage. They whipped him, stripped him naked, forced him to carry the instrument of his own execution to his execution, laid him down and crucified him for you. They nailed a sign above his head written in Latin, Greek, and Aramaic that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And they did it in mockery and in jest. And yet in their mockery and jest, God was making a statement that he is actually king. He was shamed for you. He was dishonored for you. He took the cross for you. He experienced death for you. And he rose again to show that he was victorious over all of them. And then he was seen by 500 and then taken up to heaven where he awaits for the day to come again and assume the fullness of his throne when he comes to reign openly, to be seen by all. Hope or humiliation? There is no other option. Choose this day whom you will serve. Continue on and he will cut you down. And there will be no other opportunity quite possibly. Believe now, put your hope in him, and he will save. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, when we hear those words, God will cut you down. Lord, terror grips our heart, for we know how sinful we really are. We know how quickly we are condemned. Our own consciences condemn us, and we've tried to dull it. We've tried to, to mute it, to muffle it. We have surround ourselves with all kinds of pleasures and pains in order to distract ourselves from the reality of our status before you. And, Lord, we ask that you calm our heart, help us to truly be silent before you, to see you in all of your wonderful glory, but yet see it through the light of the cross. That's where your glory was ultimately displayed. And we see the depth of your love that you didn't want to see us in condemnation, but in salvation. And that you don't delight in us in the death of the wicked, Lord, but you want all to turn to you to be saved, to be redeemed. And Lord our God, we turn to you with all of our hearts and all of our soul. And Lord, I ask today if there's anyone here that does not yet know who you are and has not surrendered to you as Lord and Savior of their life, I pray that you place it upon their heart so deeply that they cannot find rest or peace until they surrender to you and find the joy that is in and through you and you alone. And Lord, you've laid out within your word that it's very clear that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, we will be saved. And Lord, I pray today that there might be those that truly say that from the depth of their being. And for those who have rebelled, who have claimed you as Lord of their life, but they've let the sin, they let the devil have a foothold, I pray, Lord, that they might be able to turn away from it, that they might find peace with you. They might repent and claim the promise in Scripture that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And therefore, we will no longer be cut down because Jesus was cut down for us so that we can have life through Him. So bless us, be with us, speak to us, use us, transform us, and send us forth for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.